We are Pro Cannabis Media. Hi, everyone. Welcome to In the Weeds with Jimmy Young, a podcast and video interview show that is distributed on all the popular podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeart. We are also available on video platforms and social media on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, as well as our own website, ProCannabisMedia.com, and our flagship affiliate, Cannabis.net. Now, today on the program, we welcome Rob Mejia, an adjunct professor and author from the great state of New Jersey. I believe that's the Garden State. His expertise, everyone's favorite weed, Cannabis Sativa. Well, Rob Mejia joins us now from New Jersey. And Rob, I got to ask you, as an adjunct professor at a university in New Jersey, do your students call you Professor Weed? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, they usually just call me Professor Rob or just Rob or Professor Mejia. But uh, outside of the classroom, you can imagine my friends call me all kinds of things. I'm sure. Can you uh, explain a little bit about, first of all, our community harvest? Because I know you're involved with that group as well. Tell me a little bit about our community harvest. I'd be happy to. Our community harvest, a cannabis education company, is exactly what the the name says. What we do is we create cannabis uh, education material for all kinds of different entities. That can be anything from infographics to online courses to brochures, to in-person seminars, you, you name it, we do it. I like to think that I know a little bit about a can- cannabis in a lot of different areas and uh, go deep enough just to get somebody interested so they can really do some further research on their own if they want. Are these online courses available to everybody? Uh, in other words, if I wanted to take your course, could I just go online, log in, probably pay a, a tuition fee and sign up? Actually, no, it doesn't work that way. What we do is... Um, we have actually built an online course for Stockton University, where I am an adjunct professor. And that's kind of how I started my relationship to really get in there to become a professor, is that my company built a course on careers in cannabis. So we focused on the cannabis industry, jobs. It had resources like uh, sample resumes, cover letters, websites you can go to, all kinds of good information for people from the community who wanted to take the class. What, what happened was Stockton was offering a minor in cannabis studies and people in the community saw that and said, wow, I really want to take that medical cannabis class or I want to take the law in cannabis or the business in cannabis, but they couldn't because they were not enrolled students. And those classes, as you can imagine, get filled up very, very quickly. So what happened is Stockton decided to build a whole suite of classes in their continuing education department and offer a certificate in cannabis studies. So you could, as just a member of the public, go to the Stockton uh, Continuing Ed Department and sign up and take one class, two, three, four, or five and get a full certificate. And my class is one of those five that's there. Okay, that's great. Now, I got to ask you, where, first of all, how long has Stockton University had a cannabis minor or concentration of study? It's only been a couple of years, really since about... uh, 2018. I mean, it's been in the planning stages for quite some time. And I know that you work at colleges. And so you know what happens as far as having to propose a class, a curriculum, it has to go through a lot of hands, you have to have a lot of buy in. And I I really uh, have a lot of admiration for the people at Stockton who are smart enough and tenacious enough, first of all, to get it through because they were one of the very first universities to have a minor in cannabis studies. So they've been working on that for a few years. But back in 2018, 
we had our first class that started to come through and now we're actually getting graduates and I'm happy to say we had uh, six graduates this year and I know three of them are, are employed. Oh, that, and, and that's, that's the best news because you and I both know, I, I'm guessing we're age appropriate. Um, when you go to college, the whole idea besides to enjoy yourself, is to actually get enough education so that you can get hired once you graduate. And I'm guessing that skills like you offer in your course make these kids even more hireable, especially in the cannabis industry. Absolutely. The very nice thing is that these students can actually major in anything. So I have students who are communication majors, public health, exercise science, uh, there are some uh, writing majors, you name it, marketing, MBAs. I mean, there's a lot of people in business in there too. And whatever major they have, then they take this suite of five classes to get a cannabis minor. So the nice part is if you are a communications major, not only do you know how, to, how do you work with integrated media, but now you know how it affects cannabis and you have cannabis knowledge. So when you walk into a, a vertical operation, for example, not only are you there to run their social media or to do their other kind of... Uh, writing or whatever they want you to do as a communications major, but you come in there with cannabis knowledge, so you are ready to go. Speaking of cannabis knowledge, Rob, where did you get your cannabis knowledge? <laughs> well, it's kind of, it's a story that uh, is probably fairly typical. It started with um, a family member and with health concerns. So the background is that I'm, I'm one of 13 kids. I grew up in Whoa. Denver, Colorado. Yeah, exactly. Huge family. <laughs> What's in the water? I know it's in the air there, but holy mackerel, that's 13 kids. Wow. Okay. That's great. So yeah, so there was always something to do at the Mejia, Mejia household. Um, but a few years ago, it's probably been, oh boy, we're going on close to a, uh, a decade now. My older sister, Teresa, unfortunately got uterine cancer. And when she got uterine cancer, she was out in Cleveland and I w went to go see her quite often. And I kept wondering for her pain why no one ever offered her medical cannabis because she was put on, she was on no pharma before, she was healthy, she ate well, she was a good jogger, all, that, all those nice things. Um, and then they put her on pharma. And when she was on pharma, she got pretty confused, disoriented, and it only partially helped with her pain. And then she also started wasting away. She really lost her appetite. And so I kept thinking, why are they not offering her medical cannabis? We know it works well for pain and we know it works well to stimulate appetite. And so that question really stuck with me. Unfortunately, my sister passed before we could really have a chance to find out what, how it could help her. But I thought to myself, well, I still have 11 siblings. I'm still here. My parents are still here. And I would like to know in the future if, if there's a similar situation, I would like some knowledge so I can help the people around me um, that I love. So that's really why I started, how I started researching and being, um, having a background in education and just being a curious person. I really dove in and I read every book I could get my hands on. I started calling people in the industry. I went to events. I watched videos. You name it, I really dove into it. And that, that's all I did for quite some time. I have other businesses and um, I really put a lot of my efforts towards learning about cannabis. And then when I popped my head up after many years of study, I originally thought I wanted to write a cannabis cookbook and to really focus on cooking with cannabis for people who needed it medically but I found that there was such a, a dearth of baseline knowledge that I thought I really need to become a cannabis 101 guy. So let me focus on education that I already know how to do and let me jump in there. And so that's why I wrote my books. That's why I started my education company. And that's really why I am here today. And let's talk about those books. One, I believe, is called uh, The Essential Cannabis Book, A Field Guide for the Curious and the Essential Cannabis Journal. 
and personal notes from the field. Now that is something I probably could have written. I just want to say, <laughs> I did a lot of field research. And I, here's the other question I got to ask you, Rob. Is there a lab component to your class? <laughs> I had to do it. Uh, I had to do it. Backing up for a moment, you're totally right. Those are the titles of the books, The Essential Cannabis Book and Essential Cannabis Journal. And they really, again, function as 101 introductions. So they do have, they have definitions and terms. It covers history, methods of consumption. Uh, it covers social issues, racial issues. It covers a little bit of politics. And then there is a section on, uh, surprise, cooking with cannabis. So there's a couple chapters on how to have cannabis dinner parties, how to dose, and I squeezed in 40 recipes. And then I also found stories from people in the cannabis community. So I have 20 small interviews from people who are either medical patients, dispensary owners, growers, just interesting people in the industry, and their stories are incorporated. And I did that because I thought once somebody hears a, a personal story from someone, it really breaks down the stigma. Once I hear from my neighbor that CBD is helping them, for example, all of a sudden that opens up my mind a little bit. And I thought these stories of real people with real issues would sort of help um, solve some of that stigma as well. So that's, that's why I wrote my book, and that's kind of the level of the book. And then the journal is for people who are either coming back to cannabis, probably people of our age who may have tried it as you know, sometime in high school, college, or whatever, but want to become more responsible users, and also for people who really want to use it for medical purposes, and you want to track your consumption and really find out what works, what the right dose is, and again, just to uh, be your own health advocate. As far as a, a lab component in my class, um, <laughs> we do try to do a lot of activities that, that gets us out in the field well before COVID, but we were looking at things like uh, taking some tours. We had a bunch of guest speakers. We had to analyze uh, political stance. We were actually on a podcast for, uh, for Brave New Weed as a class. So really, uh -huh. I try to bring in all kinds of interaction in the class. They, they don't just need to hear me yap for an hour about cannabis, um, even though that can sometimes be interesting. I know. I know it's interesting because I've already spent at least an hour on the phone with you earlier. Uh, but I do want to go back to the, the class and the college. Um, does the college require that they all be over the age of 21, or how does that work? For, for my class in particular, well, one of them, I teach two classes there. I teach the preparation for cannabis internship class, and that's yep. really to get students prepared to get an internship, and I make a bunch of connections with uh, people who are hiring, and then also to help them get a job, too, because I do have a few people who graduate. So there is a prerequisite that people in that class have to be a junior or a senior, and I do tell them up front, if you're getting an internship, if it has anything to do with touching the plant, or even going into a dispensary, you have to be 21. So your internship might be remote if you are under 21. So if you're a 19 or a 20-year-old, you may do some marketing research and you may do some writing or something like that. But in order to um, be in the location or to touch the plant, obviously you have to be 21. And that's one of the things we cover kind of early on in the class. Well, that's good. And that's very responsible of you as, a, as an instructor too, because you know there's always that, you mentioned the stigma. Uh, you understand it. Uh, we lived it. We live it. If you're in this space every day, can you give me an example of, of the challenges that you faced when you brought it out as an educational component that you wanted to enlighten people about this amazing plant? I would have to say, actually, um, taking the education perspective, that I've actually gotten very little pushback. 
that, that by and large people at least understand that we need to know about this. It is something in our world. It's something that's coming. We have a big election coming up in November where a number of states are going to legalize either medically or adult use or, or both. But if you look at the percentage of people who live in states where it's medically legal, uh, adult use legal, I mean, it's the majority of our population. And so even people who might have some real issues, and, and I do get the same uh, five questions over and over and over again. So I can't tell you how many times I've responded to, is it addictive? Is it a gateway drug? Um, what, what about the kids? I mean, it just, you kind of get those over and over again, but, it, but it's fine. And that's, I know part of my function is to go ahead and answer those questions um, and, and to do it in a responsible manner. But as an educator, I really don't get much pushback. I haven't really had many people who said, you know, what you're doing is either wrong or wrongheaded or whatever. I think they, they're, they listen to me and they know what I'm, I'm doing. And uh, I've only pretty much gotten support. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And education, science, and research has really driven this whole green wave of movement throughout this country towards legalization in some states. I'm obviously uh, coming from my native state of Massachusetts, where it was voted in in 2016 as an adult use product. But the medical program has been around since 2013. And I qualified because of my four surgeries in 20 years and mm. um, you know the, the various arthritic I issues that I have with my body. Um, getting a medical card uh, really wasn't difficult for someone who had a qualifying condition. But as you know, in a lot of these states, the definition of what a qualifying condition is is still uh, up for debate in many, many of these states. Um, has, any, have, has any of the New Jersey legislators reached out to you to learn more about what is going on with this plant? Only a few people, which I, unfortunately I'm a little disappointed with. I, I did try to engage with my local congressperson, uh, who happens to be very conservative. I actually live in a, a very, very highly Republican uh, district, and my local representative is very anti-cannabis. But what's interesting is we both spoke to the same seniors group. And so I spoke to the seniors group, and then he came along about a month later. And of course, our take on cannabis was quite different. One of the people from the senior center contacted me and said, he's interested in learning more about cannabis. Would you reach out to him? And so I did, many times. And I never got a single response, so he clearly didn't want to engage. But I have had the opportunity since then. I was on a panel with um, the local uh, Democrats here who just had a general session on cannabis, and there were... There was an attorney on the panel. I was there. There was a dispensary owner. There was head of security. Uh, and it was a good panel. It was kind of a general discussion. And then also recently, right before New Jersey primaries, just about a week ago, I was on a panel near Atlantic City with candidate Bridget Harrison, who was running for South Jersey District 2. Unfortunately, she came up short with Amy Kennedy, um, but she had a very progressive stance on cannabis. And I actually know her through the publishing world uh, and so I did, of course, was able to involve myself with her campaign, at least to a, a minor level. But I am hoping that uh, New Jersey legislators will get smarter and come to me and, uh, and we'll talk. Legislators, politicians get smarter? <laughs> I, Jimmy, I'm always hopeful. What can I say? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm an optimist. And I don't, you know, look, I grew up in the 60s, okay? And, you know, I looked up to the, the figures that were in office until... Um, crazy people took shots at them, you know, and it, and it, I know it affected me for the rest of my life that um, JFK, who of course was, you know, 
part of Massachusetts's history, um, RFK, and Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, these three guys, uh, songs have been written about them, let's just say I'm not going to sing, but these three guys, had they lived, would have changed the direction of this, of this country early on. And it seems that we have turned back the clock now over the last few months because of COVID and the lack of leadership and the lack of knowledge that you have about this virus, plus the effect that it's had on people of color in this country. Again, another example of what the white man has done to the black man in this country. It has reared its ugly head again. Is there a silver lining? Can cannabis be a cure to perhaps give back to the diverse community that has been mostly affected, more affected than, than the white person as far as COVID goes, and also just as far as what we've done to those people over the last five, 50 years or so? Uh, first, I want to say your summary about where we are now is excellent. You've, you've said it perfectly, that it does feel like we are back again, that we have not made any progress since about 1970 or wherever you want to, want to look at it. And actually, at some of the protests I've been at, I do see some people carrying signs, and it says something like, I can't believe I'm doing this again. I'm back right. at it again. And it, and it is so true that it does feel like we are, history is really repeating itself, and we have not made much, pro much progress in many years. Um, Rob, I, gotta, I wanted to just, you were 100% right on that. And I don't know about you, but in fifth grade, I remember singing, we shall overcome someday, thinking that perhaps at in fifth grade, you'd think by the time I'm 62, we would have made some progress. Very frustrating time. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. And, and towards your point about cannabis possibly being uh, part of the solution, I think we have a good opportunity, but, but I'm also worried about the way that it's going. So I, I know there are so many people in the industry who do acknowledge up front that they're, they're, we do need to have some programs for social and racial equality uh, and progress. But even in the states that are trying to do it, Illinois, Massachusetts, and those that have made it really kind of a centerpiece of their policies, unfortunately what's happening is you're still seeing the big multi-state operators get more of the licenses, and you're not seeing as many of the smaller people get involved. I mean, what, personally, what, what I would love to see is a model kind of like um, the Hood Incubator in uh, outside of Oakland. And what they do is it's an MBA uh, female-led program, people of color. And what they've done is they actually offer people in the community real skills, access to money, and knowledge to get them in the cannabis industry. So they'll teach them how to write a business plan. They'll, they'll mm. show them where they can go to get money. They'll educate them on the basics of cannabis. They'll teach them about medical cannabis. They'll teach them how to be a good employee in, as a wellness coordinator or, or what they call a bud tender. But they give all these skills out to people in the community who were harmed by the war on drugs. And that way, I think like reaching individual people and actually helping them and putting them in a position to contribute, that to me seems marvelous. The state programs are trying, but sometimes what happens is equity candidates end up um, 30 of them in a classroom and they get a lecture about cannabis. Not saying that's not valuable, not saying it's not a little bit of progress, at least you have a target audience, at least you're trying. But I think you almost need little incubators either privately run or run by the government to actually give those people a stake in, in the cannabis industry to help them get going. Another great example of what I thought was a good policy was up in Maine, and unfortunately they've abandoned this, but in Maine what they were going to do is you had to be a resident for at least four years, put in right. your taxes four years in a row, in order for you to qualify for a license. 
that opened up things to all these smaller players. And, and, that, and they also, if you were a multi-state operator, you could not apply for a license for two years. So that gave the small craft growers a two-year head start to get in there, to start going, to establish their brand name. And I thought, that's a great thing, because then you can have people who are not multimillionaires who can't raise a crazy amount of money to get in the, get in the business, but to develop a nice, small, high-quality farm organic product that then they could uh, sell to the public. But I was so sorry to see Maine go away from that. I thought that was a smart idea that uh, I'm sorry was not pursued. Um, you know, it's interesting. I spent 11 years in Maine. It's my second home, if you will. I, I started my sportscaster career in Portland, Maine at the CBS affiliate from 81 to 92. And I still have a lot of dear friends in the state of Maine. And just recently, I released an interview that I did with a caregiver. Now, the caregiver program in Maine is really, was really designed for the person who needed medicinal cannabis and to find someone who would home craft, grow it themselves, and then put it all together and share it with those who were most in need. You mentioned the multi-state operator. Think about the regulations that have been put in place by the various states and how difficult it is to launch a new business in an industry that is as highly regulated as the cannabis industry. I know that people point fingers at multi-state operators all the time, but I got to tell you, I don't know what else they could have done. I mean, I like what you're saying in a realistic world. Yeah, the natives, the locals, the mom and pops, that would be great. And I'd like to still see that. But in reality, when you're dealing with the regulations and the laws, new laws in most cases. So you gotta be ready to pay some lawyers because you know what happens when uh, people get upset and feel like they've been you know, committed, uh, people have been taken advantage of in some capacity, they're gonna sue, which means in, to me once again that the best investment in this business is in a law firm. But um, seriously, the multi-state operator is just operating and doing business in, within a structure that they have to work within. So it, it, it's almost like, and, and now granted, a lot of these MSOs, I get it. They're, they're trying to get more than three licenses, which is the limit. So they restructure their deal and they become a management company as opposed to an owner. That's the American way of doing capitalism and business. I, I mean, I, I'm defending the MSO because I don't think there would be a cannabis business in this country if we didn't have the kind of money that they have put into this industry to start it. Yeah, I think you do make a good point. I mean, that, that is also what's uh, kind of limiting all of our progress because in, in, in so many people that I've interviewed, because I'm also a, um, I'm a magazine columnist too for Ever Cannabis mm -hmm. Magazine. And I try to find interesting people in the business. And I have ha found a few people who are tenacious enough to get through the regulations. But, it's, but when I hear their story, it is just phenomenal how much time that they had to put in themselves to learn about these regulations. And then to, they still had to use attorneys, but they used them as, as little as they could. But if you have muscled through. But I understand that, that if you're not <laughs> equipped to do that, the chances of you getting through are not good. And, and I will also say that there are some multi-state operators who I think are very good citizens. Uh, for example, there's a company called Justice Grown here in New Jersey. And I've been pretty impressed with them because part of their whole platform is they are trying to engage with people who, are, who have been incarcerated, who are coming out and they're trying to employ them. I also know they're trying to work on expungement too. So at least as a, as a corporation, 
they are trying to give people a chance who have been harmed by the war on drugs. So I know there are some good multi-state operators. And to your point, I know you need a lot of expertise and a lot of talent and a lot of money to get through all these regulations. And until we can make cannabis regulated like almost any other business, um, that I think we're going to continue to kind of limp along the way we are right now. Yeah, I, I don't know if it will ever be like any other business just because of the multitude of uses of this plant that can be grown in your backyard. You know, at least Massachusetts is offering the opportunity for um, homeowners to grow six plants per adult in one dwelling, which gives you 12 plants, which I've talked to growers, that's quite a bit a lot of weed to grow. Um, in fact, it's probably enough to, uh, I don't know, share it with others, gift it to others, let's just say. Uh, so again, I guess where I want to go with this next point is, are you seeing more interest in the growing factor or the operating of a business factor? Where, where do you see a lot of the growth and interest in the cannabis, uh, those in your classes that, that have taken it? Where, where exactly is their passion point? It's interesting. I think it's actually pretty well spread amongst the students. So I do have a certain contingent that absolutely are interested in growing. That's what they want to do. I have some who are interested in operations. I have some who want to work in dispensaries. Um, I have a few who want to go off on their own business and start their own thing. I have several who are very interested in hospitality, which is interesting that they want to cook with cannabis. They want to do a bud and breakfast at some day. Or they, or they want to do live events, sports events, those kind of things. So there's a lot of different interests in the class. I mean, the one thing I, I will point out to them is that um, in terms of growing, at least domestically, right now that you have the vertical operation, so they grow, they process, and they sell. But at some point, there's going to be national legalization. When that happens, and we can even import internationally, can you imagine a grower who's in Massachusetts or New Jersey try to compete with a grower from... Colombia, Jamaica, Mexico, Panama, their product will be so much cheaper and probably so much better unless there's a unique strain that the people in Jersey or Massachusetts come up with. So my, my prediction, and uh, we'll see if this will bear me out correctly in the future, is that the grows will be less valuable than the dispensaries. I think the dispensaries are king because you'll always need a retail place that's regulated, that's safe, that's secure, that has tested product for you to go to. So if you have a dispensary, I think you're in good shape. If you have a grow and you only have a grow, it's not part of a vertical, I think it's going to be interesting to see what will happen in, um, oh, five years, 10 years, 15 years. That um, I think then you're going to see more logistics. You're going to see importing and you're going to see maybe some more lab testing here before it gets to our dispensaries. But I think the crown jewel is really that working in the dispensaries and doing that part of the operation and the grow part, um, I think you'll have to be clever in order to keep it going once you have that international competition. Yeah, good, a great point. And it does seem to be that the vertical, those who do control the seed to sale um, activities and process, if you will, are the ones that seem to be the most stable. They seem to be getting the most investment dough. Um, I also see companies like High Times trying to get into uh, the verticals because everything else they've tried is, is not gone very well. And then I see um, the, the imports are starting to grow uh, and exports out of Canada into Germany, into Israel, into other countries. Eventually, this product will become traded in the futures market because you grow it in the ground. There'll be a wholesale price. Um, 
therein lies another element to your class. You're going to have to get into commodities and futures and, and, and learning how to trade the wholesale price and to see what is going to go up and down. Um, think about that in five to 10 years, right? You're, you're exactly correct. And I'm going to have to find a good speaker for that part because that's not my fort. <laughs> but I'm sure I I'll find somebody. somebody. Could, I know somebody you could talk to, and it's not me, by the way. Okay, but I know somebody who's an expert in the commodities world, in the futures world. Um, and he is, he's a very direct relative, and I know that he is not pro-cannabis. So in that case, um, you know, it might be an interesting person to, uh, to get into your class in some capacity. That sounds exactly right. I, I, I wanted to jump back uh, real quickly again to your question about growing. So we, yeah. we talked sort of about um, growing as a profession. I wanted to jump back and talk about growing as kind of a hobby. So the one thing yeah. that we've, of course, seen all these trends during COVID, uh, you're seeing so many people who are cooking. If you try to go into a store and buy flour or vegetable oil, vinegar, whatever, it's, it's been gone. And people are making sourdough, presumably, for some, uh, some reasons. But people are also picking up hobbies, and one of them is growing. So there is a, a boom of interest in learning how to grow a single plant or a couple plants, like you said, as a home grower. And I am seeing a lot of activity, uh, especially on the Internet, and there is such good information about growing. And there's people who can help you do your first outdoor grow if you want to be a little more uh, ecologically forward thinking and not spend a ton of money on electricity, which you can, and water and nutrients and everything else. And there's other growers who will teach you how to grow indoors with special lights and special closets and all kinds of things. The, the growers are so um, passionate and smart and good that if you want to engage with any of them and learn about growing, there is such good material out there, just a wealth of material. And, and let me ask you, as an educator, the growers believe they know everything. You know that, right? <laughs> I think some of them do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, is, are. they are fascinating people. Theories. You know, that, you've, you've, now you know, there's so many interesting people and so many fascinating parts of this industry. I have been overwhelmed and I'm extremely enthused about the amount of knowledge that I have consumed over the last two and a half years. Um, since I decided to give this a shot. Uh, and I've met some really interesting people. But the thing that is very consistent about the people that I meet, they all know that they're part of history. And they all know that the plant has played some kind of special role in their lives. And you told a very personal story about why you decided to learn more about this plant. And it's the people that say to you, cannabis has saved my life. Cannabis has changed my life. And I, and I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard that, because then I know I would have the kind of investment I need to really build out this network. <laughs> but how many times have you heard people say that to you? I, I'm with you. That's actually one of the things that kept me going in the early days. Because when I would call people, and granted, I do have a background in sales, so I have a slightly thick skin, so I'm you know, used to some people not returning calls and that sort of thing. But the people in the cannabis industry were so gracious with their time and so helpful, and I did hear these dramatic stories over and over again, and I thought, just think, wouldn't that be dramatic if I could actually be part of this, and I could actually help some people, which, um, of course, was my motivation starting up front, and I thought, well, if I can spread that and help out dozens, hundreds, thousands, I mean, wouldn't that be a pretty magnificent thing to do, and I, I would like to do that, but to your point, I, I do hear nearly every day somebody that says, oh, yes, this has helped me in this particular way, and in some ways, great and small. I mean, I have heard a few cancer patients um, talk about what it's done for them. And of course, that is a whole different area. But then I've also heard people as simple as uh, some of the aging athletes that I play tennis with. 
and I've, I've gotten some of them to uh, start using CBD and, there's, and they swear by it. Aches and pains are going away. They're playing more often. They're more comfortable. And that makes a big difference. I mean, if, if sports is one of your passions and you're limited and now you can finally go out and do it more often, more comfortably, that makes a big difference in, in how you feel and how you look at things. So I, I think it is pretty remarkable. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, that is another thing you and I have in common. We, we talked, we found, we discovered this, and we're both tennis enthusiasts. Um, and I, I think I did share with you one of the greatest moments of my life is when I got to hit the ball against Rocket Rod Laver. Um, very, very special in the 80s, uh, being able to pull that one off. And, and just so you know, that little scoreboard, that was totally totally fabricated <laughs> we only played one game okay <laughs> i i was impressed by the scoreboard i'm sorry you told me that and the, the, the one the one very quick tennis story I'll, I'll add is that uh when i was growing up i was part of the national junior tennis league which yep. was um an effort by arthur ash and others to bring yep. tennis to urban communities and so mm-hmm. i played on their teams i was i was a good little player so i got to be um i got to go to this little regional qualifier and at that event arthur ash was there Along, awesome. along with like five other pros. And so I actually got to shake hands with Arthur Ashe and I, and I won a tennis racket. That's fantastic. So as a kid, I got to go to the Longwood Cricket Club and watch Arthur Ashe play. Nice. Bob Lutz and Stan Smith played doubles. Some woman by the name of Billie Jean Moffitt hit the ball as well. Um, and I do want to go back to something you, you talked about at the very beginning about one of the objections um, that keeps coming up uh, about the kids. Now, as a kid myself, way back when, I knew a lot more about cannabis by doing than my parents did, okay? And I'm guessing that even today, in some legal states or illegal states, there are certain high schoolers out there that know more about the cannabis plant than their adults. But I do want to go back to education. In Europe, they don't have as many alcoholics in Europe as they do in the United States, where we do not allow people under the age of 21 to drink alcohol. Now, you and I both know that there are plenty of people under the age of 21 who are drinking alcohol in high school to excess, and it is a very dangerous thing to do. As someone who has worked with young people most of my life, I worry about that a lot. Now, Mothers Against Drunk Driving has done a great job of at least um, allowing us to understand that the dangers of operating a vehicle like that under the influence of alcohol is extremely, extremely dangerous. And I, I remember doing a story on a young man in Maine who had a full baseball scholarship to the University of Miami, celebrated in his Camaro and drove it into a tree and died. Okay, so these stories are out there about the dangers of alcohol and the education helped that, helped young people understand that indeed it is dangerous to operate a vehicle under the influence of alcohol. There's a lot of debate in this country about operating under the influence of cannabis. It is not the same thing. However, it is indeed something that is banned from the under 21 year old in this country. My point about Europe is they bring young people up early on in their lives, in their 13, 14, 15, 16 year old lives with wine and understanding more about alcohol. They're actually taught about the dangers of alcohol in their own 
families, in their homes. So as an educator, can't that be done here in the United States as well? I think it can, but the difficulty would be we certainly have a lot of adults that we would have to educate and they would have to be opening, they have to be open to being educated. So I think to your point that their kids actually, in some ways, probably know more than they do. I mean, actually, I can, I can guarantee you that, uh, that a high school kid knows more about vaping than probably 95% of adults because they've, they've grown up with it and they've seen it and they know that they use it in high school and everything else. Whereas adults, it's been pretty new to us and we've had to learn from the ground up. There, there was no vaping when we were growing up, but there certainly is now and it's a certainly um, kind of a big deal. So I think there's a couple things. One is I think over time that adults will kind of loosen up and they'll realize that for, for better or worse, if they have an objection to it, they, they know that they'll have to know something about it because they'll want to tell their kids or hopefully they'll entrust someone like you or me to tell their mm -hmm. kids about it. Totally fine, mm -hmm. totally happy talking about that and giving them the, the, the real facts about what's going on. So I do mm -hmm. think that we are seeing change year by year, even day by day, and especially as uh, we're able to start doing some research, as more of the medical information comes out, as hemp becomes more of a just a common fiber like anything else, I think all of that is going to start to chip at the stigma. And it already is a little bit to the point where I think most people will be willing to share information with their kids. And then also kids on their own, again, with the internet, they can find, they can find out information. If they're a little bit curious, they can find uh, some really good sources. And better than their parents. But I will say this, uh, Rob, and you and I probably won't be around to see it. The kids that are in high school now, the kids that are growing up with, a, with it being a legal commodity and that there was a recent, I know you know this study in Colorado, uh, as they look back at the 10 years of it being legal, that the, the youth use of cannabis has actually gone down in legal states. And it's because it's not taboo anymore. At least this is my opinion, okay? I believe it's not taboo anymore. So the kids aren't that interested in trying it out behind the back of the parents and all that stuff. You know, that's what, Parents put parameters on their children. This is what you can do, this is what you can't do. And as a child, for the most part, you wanna push that envelope of what they're telling you you can't do. If that stove is hot, you don't know what hot is until you touch it, right? Yeah. So again, my point is, in a state where it's legal, use has actually gone down amongst teens in Colorado. And to me, again, that goes to ed the power of education and also the power of, hey, guess what? It's an adult product just like alcohol. So you are going to have to wait. You don't have to sneak around to do it. Just wait, get educated. And when you are old enough to handle it and use it responsibly, you'll have access to it. And then when those kids become parents, then perhaps we can finally lower that adult age down to 19 or even 20. You know, when I was growing up, it was 18. And of course, it turned to 21 when I turned to 21, just saying. But it is a, it's, it's a different mentality now. And again, I, I believe, I obviously, I lean on that side. I really do believe that cannabis is far less dangerous than alcohol. And I hope that parents will take the time to educate themselves. Perhaps take your course, Rob. <laughs> I hope so. I don't, the one thing that Colorado did, I think that was pretty smart, and I wonder if it's contributed to the reduction in use, is that as, as part of their tax money that they were getting from cannabis, they have a youth education program that's in the schools. 
and I, I know the person who provides the education actually um, to some of the schools. So I've read through their curriculum. Uh, the curriculum is, is pretty good. I, I do have a couple objections. There were a couple alarmist things in there, but for the most part, I thought about 90% of it was excellent and pretty straightforward and factual. And I wonder if that's um, part of the reason, plus what you said, that it's also just becoming more normalized. They're, they're driving right. by dispensaries. They know what the age is. Um, it's not the, yeah, the illicit sort of fun thing they might want to sneak off on their, on their own for that. I, I do think all those things have kind of impacted it. Well, I'll tell you what, Rob Mejia, I know I could sit and talk with you for hours, but uh, unfortunately, I think th this has been a really good uh, example of what people can find out about your course. And let's, again, if you want to learn more about it and perhaps take this course, how do you do that, Rob? And continuing education is where I'm going on this. Go to uh, Stockton University, go to their continuing education department, and then you'll see the list of courses there. Uh, the, one, the one shortcut that I will give to your listeners, and this is a free resource, is on August 1st, 2019, I did a webinar for Georgetown University, which is my alma mater, and it was on careers in cannabis. It's an hour and 17 minutes, but if you want to get in the business, I think it's well worth it, especially if you're new. So the first part of the course, the uh, first part of the webinar goes over basic definitions. It goes over history, methods of consumption. Uh, where it's legal in what particular state, where it's decriminalized, a lot of good information. And then I actually go through different careers in cannabis. So I go through growing, processing, dispensary operations, back-end support, web design, photography, hospitality, health careers, hemp. And then there's resources too. There's salary ranges, uh, qualifications, sample cover letters. So if you want to get in the cannabis industry, it's a good free resource. And just look at... Uh, Georgetown University Career Source Career Services YouTube and look up Rob Mejia and you'll see it pop up. There you go. Hey, Rob Mejia, I, I think you do a great job. I think your students are very lucky. I wish you good luck this fall. You know, I did get into the whole COVID thing as an instructor, but I'm going to guess you have some reservations about going back into the classroom this fall. Yes. Actually, my classes are, one, one is a hybrid course, so we're only supposed yep. to meet on Mondays, and the rest is online. And then my second course, which is Introduction to Medical Cannabis, is strictly online. So I'm good on that. I'm, I'm a little that hesitant is... to go back to the class, but I, I want to make sure that as long as we have separation, that I'll be fine. Otherwise, we'll do our first few classes online as well, and then I'll see if it's safe. And if it feels like it's safe, then, then I'll go in. Otherwise, both of my courses will be online, and it will be up to me to make sure that it's engaging, interesting, and interactive, which is a lot more work. <laughs> yes, it, yes, it is. And someone who's taught a few online courses, I know how important that is as well. Uh, Rob Mejia, thank you so much for joining us on In the Weeds this week. And uh, we look forward to perhaps hearing from you again as more and more educational issues come up. I think you're going to be my go-to source for this because I was so impressed with your knowledge and how you talk about the amazing plant that is the cannabis sativa plant. So for Rob, for Rob Mejia, I'm Jimmy Young, the host of In the Weeds. Remember, it's a whole new world of weed out there. Use it responsibly. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We Talk Now, We Talk News, and In the Weeds are all available on most major podcast distributors like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and our friends at clnsmedia.com and our flagship, cannabis.net. So subscribe, share, and like our videos on all the social media networks out there, including LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, The Weed Tube, and YouTube. 
Weed Talk and In the Weeds are two productions of pro-cannabis media supported by Revolutionary Clinics, one of the top medical cannabis dispensaries in the Massachusetts area, now with three locations in Greater Boston, two in Cambridge, and one on Broadway in Somerville. Rev Clinics has a patient-first mission. They will customize your needs as a medical patient with the proper titration and combination of strains, flavors, and products. Rev Clinics, where the patient comes first. We are Pro Cannabis Media. 